you. Well, I've got Empire on the brain again. Was that an oh? <laughs> Thank you. Okay. As Paul McCartney sang, oh, look out. Last week, one of our visitors asked me for um, copies of the series of sermons I preached last year on following Jesus in the empire. He'd heard of them through some offshoot of the famous Mennonite grapevine. And I was a little worried that I'd lost them in a recent computer crash, but for better or worse, I found them and forwarded them on. But before doing that, I, um, I read them all again. And I suppose that sounds a little egotistical, and, and maybe it is. Um, what struck me, though, in the rereading was how strongly I still believe all the things I said back then and how little difference that seems to make in the way I live. It was not an occasion for beating myself up so much as wonderment. I mean, once again, I was caught up short by the contrast between what I claimed to believe and how I live. And this feeling was, feeling was, was heightened in preparing for this morning. This, this Sunday is a very strange mixture of the profane and the sacred, the imperial and the faithful. Today we celebrate and anticipate the Thanksgiving holiday, a secular event with theological overtones. And liturgically speaking, we celebrate Christ the King Sunday, or the Reign of Christ Sunday. Our participation in the celebration of a holiday manufactured for us by our government, guided by our national mythology of pilgrims and native people sitting down for a peaceful meal, is immediately preceded by a Sunday in which we confess that Jesus Christ is not only King of the Jews, but ruler of the universe. I have to say the coincidence is striking. The coincidence is even more striking, I think, when we reckon with the ritual of the Thanksgiving meal, a clear parallel to our communion, a table prepared in the presence of our enemies. Now, determining who the enemies were, of course, depends on whose version of history we accept, that of the pilgrims or that of the native people. Suffice it to say that no matter how we read it, there were enemies at the table. Or think about George Washington's call for a day of prayer and fasting, a day of thanksgiving following the victory over Britain in the War of Independence. Or the annual Thanksgiving tradition that was inaugurated by Abraham Lincoln, a tradition motivated in part by the victories of the Union Army at Gettysburg and elsewhere. A holiday devoted to giving thanks to God, wrapped in the flag of a victorious army. The perfect blending of the faith and the nation. And here we are celebrating the reign of Christ Sunday and making plans for our turkey dinner later in the week. <clears throat> now before I get the reputation for being the Grinch who stole Thanksgiving, um, let me assure you that our family's Thanksgiving plans are well underway. We are eager to sit down with our sons and some good friends and eat that fabulous meal together. We look forward to pumpkin pie and cranberry sauce and gravy and filling and all the laughter and conversation that go with them. So to paraphrase Neil Young, don't let me bring you down. Don't let my pointing out this weird mix of the patriotic and the Christian wreck your holiday. Relax, relax, enjoy, eat, share, give thanks. My agenda is not to chop away at a favored season or the pleasure that we take in its observance. It's more to wonder how we followers of Jesus can go ahead and celebrate our heads off and yet remain conscious of the claims we make on this reign of Christ Sunday. And my question does not come solely from my rereading of those old empire sermons, though they did put me to misquote Billy Joel in an empire state of mind. It comes also from our 
gospel reading. Okay, somebody got that one. That's good. See, Empire State, New York State of Mind. You see that? That is clever. Sorry. Um, anyhow, that's unbecoming in a preacher, I suppose. Anyways, um, my Empire State of Mind does not come solely from rereading those old sermons. It comes also, I think, from this gospel reading for this morning. This really quite amazing encounter between Pilate and Jesus of Nazareth, the secular ruler who is, according to John, both mystified and terrified of this Jesus and the people calling for his death. The self-proclaimed unbeliever, driven to political argument and even deep philosophical debate, what is truth, by a young rabbi from the empire's backwater. Rome's emissary, driven to excuses and capitulations to the demands of a mob, and in that famous scene from Matthew's Gospel, motivated to wash his hands and make clear that even though he was the most powerful human being in the region, he was not about to accept the blame for the death of the carpenter from Nazareth. Amazing. And Jesus, in true Johannine fashion, parrying the questions with mystical answers, never quite letting Pilate off the hook, but never really answering his questions either. You say that I'm a king. Responding to Rome's powerful emissary as an equal, or perhaps even as his superior, do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to me. Then those most damning words to end it all, words spoken by those now clamoring for Jesus to be put to death, we have no king but the emperor. And Pilate, more afraid than ever, John tells us, has his hand forced and so turns Jesus over to be crucified. It's an extraordinary scene. The empire, while providing the backdrop against which the life of Jesus unfolds, here suddenly and for a moment standing in the foreground and fully exposed. And the empire, we believe, is utterly undone by the humble and beaten Jesus of Nazareth. Not by the violence of the armies of an earthly king. No, Pilate was undone by the gentle Jesus whose kingdom is not of this earth and who willingly offers himself to death. The one who tells Pilate that whatever power he has over Jesus has been given to Pilate from above not from Rome, by the God whose servant Jesus is and whose servant Pilate is too. The empire is nothing more than a pawn in this story, nothing more than a pawn used to carry out the will of God who sent Jesus. Jesus inhabits the place of the accused, the victim, the prisoner, and the condemned. And yet it is Pilate's weakness, the empire's weakness, which astonishes us. It's Pilate's weakness, the empire's weakness, which is exposed in this encounter with the already beaten and bruised Jesus of Nazareth. And it's an exposure that we see repeated in our reading from Revelation. In this book, too, Rome moves back and forth between the background and the foreground. John of Patmos reveals his visions in order to equip his communities for living faithfully to Jesus in the midst of the Roman Empire. And he begins by reminding them that the true ruler of all, the true Lord and King, is God. 
One commentator I read notes how outrageously subversive these opening lines are, how this opening takes the language of empire, the kind of high-sounding rhetoric reserved for describing Caesar, and uses it to describe someone altogether different, the true king and ruler over all. God has set Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, as the ruler over all kings of the earth. And so it seems, for John at least, the first thing to remember when trying to discern how to live faithfully as a follower of Jesus in the empire is to remember that Jesus Christ is the ruler over all the kings of the earth. That's the starting point of the book of Revelation. Whatever power Caesar may have is at best secondary to that belonging to Jesus Christ to the glory of God. And that's not something new under the sun, John tells us. This is the way it is and always was and always will be. An amazing assertion, one which ought to shape our every move from the moment we understand it to that moment when Christ makes his promised return. I've often publicly fretted, perhaps too often, about how little difference this assertion makes in my life and in the lives of the Christians that I know. Maybe I'm too hard on us, too hard on myself, but I know how cozy I've become with the enticements of empire, how comfortable I've become in the facts of life in this most powerful nation on earth, how the assumptions of empire, the the security it provides and the bounty it produces and the exceptional nature of its very being, I know how those assumptions too often go unquestioned and how afraid I would be of any answers coming from asking those questions. I know in short just how domesticated I've become, how complacent I've become here in the empire. But maybe I'm asking too much, asking too much of myself. Maybe I'm asking too much of all of us. Maybe my standards are unreasonable, or maybe the scope of what I'm looking for is simply too big. Maybe I'm seeking radical and overwhelming changes when I ought to be looking a bit closer to the ground. Maybe, as Pastor Sue reminded us in her long-ago Empire sermon, maybe the change I'm looking for is not so grand and high-powered. Maybe it can be found, maybe it should be found, in smaller, more immediate, more day-to-day, hour-to-hour living. Maybe I ought to stop looking way out there somewhere into the distance for some grand awakening and look instead at the smaller, incremental steps of faith, which will, with God's help, someday bring us to that grand awakening, which brings me back to Thanksgiving. Rather than feeling all sheepish or guilty about enjoying this secular holiday, what might we do to claim it as belonging to Christ? What might we do to subvert the secular claims of the day while still enjoying the turkey and all the trimmings? Well, this is what I came up with. First of all, Let's say out loud somewhere along the way, perhaps before we say grace, that our reason for celebration is our gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. That we do not gather at the table at the invitation of the President of the United States or the Congress of the United States or Hallmark or even family tradition. No, we gather at the table because we are children of God And so it is right and good for us to give thanks for all the gifts which come from and through Jesus Christ. Second, let's remember that while we all have much for which to give thanks, that there are others all around us for whom this day is just more evidence of their poverty, 
those for whom the parades and football games and frozen turkeys in the grocery stores serve as reminders of loss or a lack of communion, reminders of weakness and need. Let's do so not in order to cast a shadow over our celebration, but instead to do something much more radical, and that's to remind ourselves of the gospel commandment to care for all around us and not just for those around our table. A commandment which calls us to love everyone and to serve those abandoned or neglected or despised by the powers and principalities of this earth, those whom the empire considers unworthy of our care. Let us pray that God will use the meal to give us the strength and courage we need to love and serve Christ as we love and serve our friends, our sisters and brothers, our neighbors, and our enemies. Third, somewhere along the way, let us pray the prayer taught to us by Jesus himself, that prayer which invites us to ponder what it means to place our lives in God's hands, even to the point of relying on God to provide for us, to give us our daily bread. Let's pray together that God's will revealed to us most fully in Jesus Christ, will be done here on earth as it already is being done in heaven. Let us pray that we will learn to forgive as we've been forgiven. And let us ask to be protected from the temptations of empire, both subtle and gross, and to be kept faithful as we follow Jesus from the table and back into the world. And finally, let's be joyful. Let's put away the things that cause us to be all tense and anxious. Let's turn our backs on the fear that's so often generated by our culture. Let's do those things as best we can. Let's lay our burdens down, if only for a little while. And let's open our arms and our hearts to those we love. And let's do all of those things consciously, gratefully, and in the spirit of Christ. I mentioned earlier the Eucharistic nature of the Thanksgiving feast. Well, let's not turn away from that apparent co-optation of our central meal, but instead let's embrace it and go at one better. Let's know ourselves as disciples gathered in the presence of Christ himself and let us understand that he is with us in the food and in the drink and the laughter and the stories, the kisses and the embraces, and yes, in the cleaning up and putting away. What better way to be both subversive and joyful than to celebrate Thanksgiving as followers of Jesus. Well, those are some ideas that I have, some small ways, some manageable ways, but also, I think, some profound ways that we can simultaneously proclaim that we have no Lord but Christ and participate in the celebration of Thanksgiving, small acts of faithfulness, simple things, really, which slowly and over time serve to reorient us and so lead us ever closer to that great day when we will finally be all that we ought to be, all we are called to be as followers of Jesus Christ who are in but not of the empire. You may have other ideas, other small steps to recommend that uh, we practice this Thanksgiving holiday season. And if so, I'd be glad for you to share them during our community lifetime. Some small but I think powerful steps that we can take while we eat the pumpkin pie or prepare that first leftover turkey sandwich. Steps which may seem insignificant in the moment, but which will over time accumulate to our benefit. And with God's help, draw us a little bit closer to the one we proclaim on this day to be Christ the King, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Thanks be to God. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.